This is the Evolution Exchange podcast, a platform that brings the Nordic tech community together. My name is Sean Hughes. I connect businesses with freelance tech solutions, and I'm your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Alan Smith, Tim Aguere, Alexander Lundquist, and Jacob Risbecker to discuss the topic of creating high-performance teams. Before we delve deeper into the topic itself, let's work our way around the room uh, with some introductions. Tim, would you like to kick us off? Sure. So my name's Tim. I am a UX designer. I've been a designer for 15 years. 10 of those are within UX. Um, I worked at uh, both agency startups and different product companies. At the moment, I am currently the, what's my title? It's Well, it's a senior UX manager at a company called Extenda Retail, where we work with uh, different checkout solutions uh, for different stores and retail brands like Ika and Coop and H&M and stuff. Sounds good. Thanks for that, Tim. Thanks. Alan, do you want to um, introduce yourself next? Sure. So I'm Alan Smith, uh, Vice President for User Experience and Service Design at Electrolux. Uh, if you're not familiar, Electrolux is a manufacturer of uh, home appliances and other products. And my role there is really around cultivating a community of our professional UX designers, uh, front-end developers, UX researchers, service designers, uh, and amongst others. And we're all working on uh, sort of new smart home services, user interfaces for all of our products, and really the application of digital technology to make day-to-day living uh, healthier, and more sustainable. Uh, Previously, uh, I've uh, worked uh, in different design consultancies, uh, but also at Ericsson, where I helped start an innovation management program based on design thinking. At uh, Volvo Group, where I was a global head of user experience there, and uh, also Qualcomm in the US, and a number of different startups. Thanks, Alan. Jacob, we'll come to you next. Yeah. Um, so Jacob Respecker, um, work currently as a head of product at a company called eBerry. So it's a, a company within the Nordic Choice Hotels group. So hotels like Clarion, but also Nordic Light, Yasiragi, for those that you know are familiar with those hotels. Um, our company was formed sort of to, to take on the um, the guest-facing products that we develop in, within the company, the digital products that face the guests. So basically the whole guest journey that you encounter when you visit a hotel. So it's both sort of the UX aspect of it digitally, but also the service design when you're at the hotel, you know, when you check into a service station and those kind of things. So my background is in, in product and project management for about 18 years. I've been dabbling with mostly web and app development, e-commerce, but also CRM marketing, ERP, BI, and and whatnot. Um, so I've, I've been fortunate enough to be you know, forming eBerry from the beginning, from when we were only a few people to where we are now, and the pandemic hit us hard. So pre-pandemic, I had about 12 product and, and UX people in my team and now we're we're you know really scaled down so we're scaling up again so that's where we're at thanks Jacob and last but not least Alexander um tell us a bit more about you absolutely so uh, I am Alexander Linquist. I'm also a designer of course uh, been working in the industry for about 12 13 years now uh, I'm also currently the co-founder of a company called Frank we are, you could say, a creative agency in Stockholm. We are quite fairly new. We started about two years ago and have been growing rapidly. And what we actually try to do is to infuse the world of a classic agency with the so-called IT consultancy and pick the best from both worlds and combining them, basically. So we want to take a broader uh, aspect of the whole customer journey, uh, even though with growth, marketing, but also with product, basically. 
Uh, and my background is also from design in different areas, but also uh, as an entrepreneur, I've been running startups and so on as well. So I have a designer entrepreneur background, you might say. And my current role uh, at Frank is that I am running our design operations here to be able to make a kick-ass design, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, I would say to, to make our culture, I would say, kick-ass design culture. <laughs> I think that's the term, to marry these two worlds, basically, marrying the, the culture from the agency side and marrying it with the design culture from the IT consultancy side and getting the best of both worlds. Fantastic. Now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic in focus today. You've all got a question or a statement on the topic of creating high performance teams. Now, as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Uh, each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation um, posed by your fellow contributors. So I'm going to come straight back to you, Alexander, um, keeping you on your toes. Um, you wanted to ask the question, how do you onboard new people for success in a high performance team without losing culture or momentum? So you talked there about kick-ass design culture. This is, I suppose, looking at design culture, but also people culture as well and, and the deeper level of that. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about where this question has come from uh, before we uh, work our way around the room giving some learned experiences and insights into how other people have have had success or maybe even failures and lessons that they've learned absolutely um, and as i talked about recently in the introduction is that our company frank is quite new uh, but we also have a quite big design team compared to our size as a company. And we have grown very fast the last couple of years, but we also grown fast during the pandemic. And these two combined created a quite hard constraint on everything, especially regarding to onboarding, especially since you can't meet uh, in physical, you have to do everything digital. How do you make sure that you do recruitment and, and set up people for success when they join? How do you get them out of the client and how to make sure that they have everything they need? But it's also the, the soft values as well. How do you make sure that people feel that they are seen, they are heard, they get what they need and so on. So just because we have grown so rapidly at the same time as we cannot meet physically, this is something that has been quite a challenge for us, but I think we, we managed okay, but I would like to discuss to see if others have any other uh, input on the topic itself. It's a good question. Um, Jacob, I'm going to come to you first. What's your um, sort of insights and experience of, of this? Um, it, it's it's definitely a tough tough question, and, and I mean, if 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 you're a company that's growing really quickly, it becomes even more challenging, right? If you have people coming in every month, how are you going to maintain the? Especially if you're a small team, maybe at first, and and you know you're growing, you're maybe growing into new product areas, and uh, you know you want to form new sort of new teams within the team, and and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's definitely a, a challenge. Um, but I think you know the onboarding process starts already in the recruitment process, right? It 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 has to start there. If you if you know your team and not only you know the competencies, but you know you know their behavior and how they act and you know the differences they have and and the mentality of the team and and uh, and and also I mean if you know your culture, you know, and really know your culture, you're a strong culture. Then I think it's it's a lot easier to to sort of know what people you're trying to find and it's not only about you know reviewing the cv it's it's of course about actually knowing the person you're you're bringing on uh, and see if that's a good fit in the team um and i think i mean if if you can if you can grow a team organically then it's a lot easier to to sort of make sure that persons get adjusted in the team and then you bring on the next one but you know sometimes that's not possible and uh, we've experienced that too. Um, but it, when you look at the recruitment process, I think it's good to know all your touch points, how you convey your culture and all the all the channels that you you know talk to your 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 the person you're gonna hire. But if you go into the you know when the hiring process is done and you're gonna onboard, if it's always first impressions, right? The first day is key. How how you how you present your company from 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 you know it, it needs to match the recruitment process. You need to spend time and take your time in, in introducing a person to to you know everyone and and 
I think, as in general, avoiding politics, <laughs> avoiding people protecting their areas, right? Uh, if you have a lot of prestige in your team, it's going to be hard for someone to find a place and fit in. Um, so as, as a manager, you need to set the tone uh, for that and, and create that sort of culture. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, that needs to continue throughout the weeks and months to come. And, and that's the tough bit if you need to spend time with it. So maybe you need to sign someone in the team also to be sort of a mentor or guide if it's a junior person and, and sort of have a, have a good transition in the team. Yeah. It's good insight. Alan, what are your thoughts? Well, I appreciate the question. And uh, I've uh, been recruiting like crazy actually this past year. So just for context, my group globally across our four design studios, uh, it's around 50 people. And um, I'm, it's, it's uh, not an understatement to say I'm always interviewing every week <laughs> I'm interviewing. And uh, and I couldn't agree more with what Jacob just said around the the onboarding experience really begins then. It, it begins at that offer uh, stage and uh, sort of, you know, what is the communication like and uh, are they getting timely information and are they getting the tools they need to even start integrating into your team and the company and everything else before they actually walk into the building. Um, maybe two two things to answer to this. One is sort of the strategy. So when I think about onboarding new people, it's one, spending a lot of time recruiting and attracting the talented believers because uh, that's really more than half the battle. And once you have them, it's really about getting them to work together with the folks uh you know that they need to work with because people new new people want to be productive as soon as possible and as a company we want them to be productive as soon as possible right so our interests are aligned there so you know how can we do that and this gets into the maybe second part of this is tactics and you know one of i have maybe a little different uh, situation than you all because I'm in a big company. So we have, you know, HR and we have lots of systems and things like that. Um, and that's good. It's It can be a little too much though. And sometimes they're not very well integrated. So, you know, I think we can, we have some areas to improve there. Uh, but that's really that first day experience, that first week where you're, you're getting all that information and there it's just having that good relationship with your HR person. But then for me personally, the first uh, few weeks, you know, I I have them uh, go and interview uh, people internally. And uh, so I'll give them a list to start with and, and I'll sort of explain who they are and why I think it's good for them to meet. Uh, but then, you know, I encourage them to ask that person for uh, ref, you know, names of people that they think they should meet. And this is a way to organically start building that network, um, which I think is a really effective way of uh, working. And then sort of the other tactic that I uh, normally employ is the first three months, it's very high touch. So uh, I prioritize making time uh, with that person, uh, have one-to-ones every week um, to uh, answer their questions, help fill in the blanks, uh, hear you know, about their process or their progress, and uh, yeah, make sure they're sort of getting going in the, in the right direction. And I found that that can be quite an investment of time, but it's well worth it because you're able to get them uh, going in a much stronger position uh, after after a few months. Some really cool ideas, different ways of doing it for sure. Not stuff that I've experienced myself, um, but one that I may suggest for our scaling um, in our team here at, at Evolution Nordics that we're going to be embarking on again in February. 
Tim, I'm going to come to you for, for your, the final word on this question before we head back to Alexander for his sort of um, his thoughts, I suppose. Yeah, I, um, I agree with, well, with the bits and pieces of, I don't disagree with anybody, uh, but I, I share the same, uh, the same experience uh, with different bits and pieces. Um, I think onboarding-wise, yeah, I agree. Uh, keep uh, a good relationship with your HR person because <laughs> they are, they are um, super important in this. Um, but then it's also, I think, also having been on both ends, uh, both being been onboarded, I think generally, so it's it's always come down to the human factor because when you onboard, you do it as an individual, right? So there's always this sort of company, like always in the interviews and stuff like that, you start talking about company values and this is how we live and this is how we work, etc. But it's it's sort of like most companies say sort of the same things, right? Um, it's uh, it's sort of like same same but different. Um, but it's not until you work there for a while where, where you notice actually which companies actually live their culture and which don't, right? So up until that point, they're just words. Um, and it's always sort of the closest manager, I think, culture-wise that needs to live that culture because that's your closest point of contact. Uh, I mean, for me, the culture of my team is through my closest manager, right? And for my team, uh, who I manage, uh, their culture, their um, experience of the company culture is mostly through me, right? Um, but then even me as a manager, my first day, I do it as an individual, right? I'm still as lost as the people that I onboard. So I think it does come down to the human aspect and the individual aspect. You need to see each person as an individual. And I think during those first weeks, just what you were sort of going into, Alan, which was like the, a close point of contact on an individual basis, right? Um, and like small gestures can come really far. So you can give people tools. You can give people like they can have a computer set up when they come to the first day. You can give people like the actual tools. But then just putting a post-it note saying we're so happy that you're here can make all the difference, right? You don't have to put balloons and like fanfares when they come in the door, but just something personal that gives it just a little bit of that extra personal touch during that first day. So you don't feel like just a cog, even though it might be in a big company. So I was a UX manager at Tele2 for a while, which is a really big company as well, right? But then it might be just put a post-it on their, uh, you know, on their desk on their first day and say, so happy that you're here, just something like that, right? Check in with them often. I think that's the most important aspect, regardless of onboarding procedure. I really like that idea, especially in the, the word that Alexander uses in his question, which is momentum. And I think little personal touches like that, um, which aren't the done thing, um, might not be things that people think of really in, in what that can mean in setting the ball rolling for a really good culture and, and, and a good fit for for teams and, and, and giving them the platform to be successful and giving them the, them the, moment, the momentum. Wow, easy for me to say. Um, and a platform to go off, really. Um, Alexander, what are your um, sort of lessons that you can maybe take into um, your journey in, in the young company that you're, that you're currently working in and, and, and setting up. I, I agree with everybody as well. And as I think that as Tem says, it's, it's a lot about the individual because we are all different. And I think that is also my experience with it. What I also just realized, which is quite interesting as well, is that my context is, is very dependent on this as well, on this question, because I noticed that we all here have different contexts in which we onboard people in, which is frankly quite interesting in this case, because I recently onboarded designers that then went out consultancy working with Alan at Electrolux. So I have like another level to this as well, which is very interesting now because I I, I hired a designer that I rarely met uh, physical because of COVID. And then she went out working at Electrolux, which makes her like one step even farther away from me than regular. 
So I have to handle like another layer as well, which is very interesting. Uh, but I, I totally agree with everything that you say. And I think it was also, uh, I think it was IDEO that have on their uh, application is like, what is your favorite snack? Because then they can like have that all over the office when that person starts after they sign their, their contract. And I think those small things, as Tem say, it really makes a lot, lot of difference for people. Like if, if you're not expecting it, it's going to make a big impact, even though it's not a big thing. So, and, and I love those types of things as well to, to yeah, I think it's good for the brand, but it's also very fun for the individual as well. So I think it's very interesting just to see the, how, how the context actually matters a lot in this question. It really does, it really does. It's a good start. Um, we're gonna go to Tam next for his question as I think that that sort of flows nicely into, uh, well, we, we can segue from from that quite nicely into, into Tam's question, um, particularly around some of the stuff that, that Alan was saying on um, stuff that he does, um, which tends to have success. Um, so Tam, you wanted to ask, are there any team routines or rituals that anyone in the room has had particular success with? Do you want yes. to tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I'm, uh, so it, and it does, I think that sort of goes into the whole culture thing, right? Like living culture value. So um, I'm always curious to different routines uh, and rituals. And then I mean, if it's different meetings or different ways of having meetings or whatever, right? Uh, within the team that sort of creates the team culture. So for instance, um, some, um, at every different place I've been to, I've sort of gathered the, taken the, the best bits and pieces with me, right? So the the format that I am right now, which is uh, I sort of have, um, I try to have as few meetings as possible, but the ones that we do that have a really sort of focused and beneficial. So we check in on Mondays, right? Where we just uh, set the, the focus for the week and it's not, like a stand-up it's not like oh this is these are the tickets or tasks that i'm going to be doing for the week but it's just like this week i'm focusing on maybe um setting up for a workshop or it's like what's my what's top of mind on my week what's my main focus and then in the middle of the week we have a thing called where it's design review which is um well a lot of design teams have it where they sort of uh, together with the designers, um, they go through unfinished design. And then, um, uh, but it's sort of the structure of that meeting is fixed. So we have a check-in question, which is uh, just a random, like it's a random matter. We just basically pull one out of the hat, right? Where everybody answers the same question. Um, and then we set the agenda for each meeting, like who has something to show this week. And then on Fridays we check out. So it's like um, that thing that you were gonna focus on um, at the beginning of the week, how did it go? And then we basically just uh, set the uh, different ratings. So we rate uh, like our focus and um, the, the company ourselves like how has our energy been for the week and how close do we feel to the to the rest of the ux team um, we can sort of follow along but those are the three sort of main uh, rituals so well, let's go to alan first um, what are your thoughts on this yeah it's a interesting topic and I was uh, just reflecting on all the different places I've worked at and what were some of those things that uh, I felt uh, worked and it, it, it can be pretty specific because uh, I get what Tim is saying. Um, the things that actually stick out more to me though are the more social things so uh where it can be like an inside joke or uh an inside way of communicating uh yeah. with it's very particular to that team right that helps bring people together and so uh but i mean aside from that i think 
I mean, I myself, and I'm, I'm an immigrant to Sweden, uh, and the fika is, I think, a great ritual that uh, I've uh, adopted or has been sort of uh, shown to me to be effective. I think uh, dinners, I try and take, you know, the, the teams out, especially if, I, if I'm traveling to uh, different locations, uh, always take the team out and um, you know, try and not talk about work actually uh, for a little bit and, and find out who, who these interesting people are. And I guess one thing, one question I had actually is whether this is easier in person, this, this sort of rituals for success, is it easier to do that in person or how has, you know, remote working sort of changed this? I, I know in my own way, I feel remote working has maybe started to make things a bit more transactional than I would like. It's harder, you know, to like have just sort of a normal conversation uh, with people, and uh, that's maybe one one concern I have is like I'm losing some of this ability to have social rituals. Yeah, definitely, I agree, and I I think I think also I mainly my team most of my team is spread out, so we sit in different countries, right? So um i agree with the social aspect so i try to sort of in the daily so the the monday check-in for instance that's like half an hour at the most where we just talk about like okay just chit chat a little bit on how the weekend was and then it's like all right guys so what's your focus for the week bam 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 focus 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 and then we then we uh, we leave for the week um and then by i think by answering the by check the sort of check-in question that's not work-related, it sort of creates. It's it could be questions like you know what book are you reading at the moment? What's your favorite ice cream combo? How do you visualize a year? Like I asked that question uh, at my group at Tele2, we were about 12, 13 people, and it was like really interesting discussions where people you just learn you get to know people like how they think and what they like. Um, so I try to bake the social aspect into that meeting. But I agree it's super hard because when you're sitting remote, like you can't just take people out to dinner or have fika together. It sort of becomes a work meeting whether you want it or not. It becomes very like, okay, now we have set out to um, hang out. So we're actively hanging out, right? You're well, not sitting next to each other. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Jacob, what are your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I agree with you and and uh, with both of you, Alan and Tam. And it's you know all of the designers at our places they they belong to a, to a development team, an agile cross-functional team. So you know you have that whole bit with dailies and and uh, groomings and and uh, we also do what you do, Tam, with design reviews and requirement reviews. And we sit with the tech lead. A design lead and and you try to align you know the designs and detail things and um uh, the same with also insight work that we try to to navigate that across different products and different teams um but what we found also worked to to sort of spread knowledge so it you know i, I liked the bit when you had when you have common like department meetings or whatever you want to call it that you share a personal thing so that we do every other week you maybe share you know what's, what's your favorite superhero or uh, something personal that gives some sort of context into who that person is and, and we usually do it in a broader sense so it, it's it's a light sort of personal touch but it's still something that says something about a person um, we've tried setting off um, you know one or two hours every other week every third week to look at uh, inspirational maybe talks. It could be a TED talk, it could be uh, something else. You, I mean, it needs to be related to work, but it could be a spin-off or indirect to work where you know it sparks creativity. Uh, and, and I think that's worked a lot. It, it could be future tech, it could be future processes, whatever it is. 
just maybe during a lunch, you know, get the team together and, and have a nice session. And that can be done virtually too. So it's, it's fairly good when you're remote. Um, and when it comes to the remote bit, we've done virtual coffee breaks sometimes every day. You know, not all people are tense, but it's sometimes nice if you, if you get lost in, in your own world. Uh, we, we set up all day virtual meetings, just log in to to uh, to a session uh, and that works i mean it, it it's hard it's you know a year and a half of this it's been rough because people tend to drop off more and more and then you have to sort of keep it up and set set a good example and, and join yourself and encourage people to join um we've tried you know celebrating failures and successes in the right way uh in in town halls and and that sort of thing um, so I, I think that works and, and also I think, you know, seeing the small wins, you know, not only celebrating the big ones, but the smaller ones that tend to go unnoticed. So if you, if, you know, if you have your, your, your ear close to the rail, you, you'll hopefully notice those and be able to celebrate those. And I think those gives a lot of, a lot of, um, it's a it's a good success to see those. You see the joy in people when when you actually find those. Yeah. We do something similar in in our team in terms of um, the coffee breaks that you mentioned. Whenever we're remote working, so generally Thursday, Friday, the team works remotely, which means we're all sat in separate homes and and we don't get to see each other. And celebrating those small wins is something that we're really good at, but becomes harder um, when you're not with each other because you don't really share them as much. Um, and we implement a, um, I mean, we're in Britain, but we, we implement a FICA um, every Thursday and Friday. Um, everyone joins, we celebrate the wins. We um, we do what we, we have a, a quick five, 10 minutes celebrating everyone's wins from the day. Um, and then we're banned from talking about work. Um, and we talk about what we're all up to at the weekend and, and what's people having, what's everyone having for tea tonight? Um, that was very Northern English there, calling it tea. Tea is, tea is dinner um, in, in my language. Um, Alexander, what are your thoughts on, on routines and rituals? Have you had success with anything or even any failures, anything that you've learned from? This is actually one of the topics that hits very close to my heart. Uh, and I, I will answer this with a different take, because something that I realized a lot in my role as design operations and my take on what design operations is, is a lot about this question. And again, what I realized is, as Tem talked about with the last question, is everybody is an individual who has different backgrounds, expertise, knowledge, needs, uh, fears, and whatever. And what I learned or what, how I, I employ these things is that time changes, things changes, culture changes and needs also change. Just like how we work with digital products today, it's the same with, with meetings and rituals as well, like needs of our teams. So what I usually do or what I usually say is that I am not a design boss or I, I'm not a decision maker, I am a design facilitator my job is to facilitate our design culture and our design framework and we as a collective are running it together so what i mean by that is that what i do is that i meta the process basically i use our own user-centric approaches on ourselves to be able to find our pain points and our current needs to be able to make sure that we are always up to date and changing our agendas based on what we actually need right now because I, that, that came to me as a realization when I did one-on-ones with all our designers, when I had like an agenda that was set for each meeting every month, monthly that we do it, is that it was very repeated. And eventually I noticed that like the engagement went down very much from the participants because they knew what question I was going to ask and they kept asking the same thing or talking about the same things. So I changed it up one day and I said to them instead that, okay, I will not bring an agenda. You tell me how we can spend these 40 minutes to create the most value for you because I have no idea. You set the agenda, you tell me what we're supposed to do. So I am trying now to actually applying that same thought on the whole collective. So 
I actually have designers now. We have two meetups, for example, each month that is internal at Frank, where all the designers at Frank meet. And we define designers with everybody that uses our practices to, to deliver on our uh, on, on the goals. So everybody who's using user-centered approach, UX writers, communicators, visual designers, UX service, all of those, we count those as designers internally. So all of those meet up at least twice a month. And those meetups are also run by people in the community. They will say people who are hired as working as designers here. So I do not run our meetups. They run them, two of them on each meetup. And they set the agenda and decide what we do with that hour. So it's it's totally up to everybody here what we want to spend our rituals or meetings on. Like what is the thing we do? For for example, we we went to a museum once because we felt that we needed inspiration. So we went to photographers get together, or we just have a meetup to show everybody what we're working on to get feedback. Or so the thing is that I I don't decide the community basically decides, and I think that's that's have been a very interesting output. Yeah, I I think you're onto something there. When it's like um, I think the the importance of the rituals is to have them um to have them set basically so people so so you're sort of forced to have them because that you know building that habit is important but then i agree with having within those meetings the format uh being flexible and letting the conversation take go where it you know where it uh, where it goes basically i'm kind of curious about alan because uh, i mean since you you probably have the maybe the biggest team here um like how do you do it like because do you sit in one-on-ones like eight hours a day or <laughs> uh it can feel like that sometimes um well you know i don't have 50 direct reports but uh uh i do <clears throat> I do invest a lot of time in one-on-ones, um, even after they've been fully onboarded. Uh, you know, it's uh, you know what ten hours a month minimum, and then uh, and then we have uh, team meetings, um, and also you know what works in our culture is. Uh, really a, a more of a networked approach. So of course you have the operational reporting, but more important is actually uh, these sort of competence-based networks where you have uh, very senior people and very junior people, and maybe the competence is visual design or it's uh, user research or whatever, and, and they're distributed around the world. And so they come together uh, on whatever cadence makes sense for them uh, to share and uh, learn, develop. Some really interesting and um, exciting routines and rituals that I'm sure a lot of people will be able to take away from this and, and implement into their own teams and their own structures. Um, so thank you very much for that. We're going to come to Jacob next who wanted to ask how would you approach establishing and understanding all the way to the top management of the importance of UX, UI and service design? Tell us a bit more about it, Jacob, and then we'll come um, to Alan first to, to give his thoughts. Yeah, um, so, so I mean, pre-COVID, uh, we were, you know, a good way into sort of establishing that UX is not only the you know the visual components you create a bit so you know in, in our we're a hotel company first which kind of shows when you're trying to to uh, you know develop digital products and and set ux in the front seat and what we try to convey is you know ux is a lot more than than the visuals things it's it's basically how you how you develop your business Right. If, if, if you know how to talk to your customers, you know how to analyze insight in a professional way, you know how to pose questions that are not, you know, that doesn't push an agenda that are objective and you know how to, to do qualitative and quantitative research and that whole whole bit uh, that I mean, that was the biggest struggle trying to to 
get top management to understand that you know gut feeling decisions is not the way forward you need you need ux is a good process design as a whole i'm talking the, the whole of design it's, it's a it's a brilliant process to to uh, make sure that you build the, the right products to the right customers and and you know that you actually bring value and it's yeah so that's been the struggle um we've developed you know a ux process tried to establish that but but it's been you know tiny steps towards understanding you you know you take one one step forward and almost two steps back sometimes so, so, so how, Alan, how yeah sorry 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 jacob i cut you up yeah. there um, yeah, Fitch, what were you going to say sorry um so so yeah it, it would be good to hear your insights if you if you've uh, approached it built it in a way or if you're maintaining sort of that um knowledge or in, in the company what i will say is we we've we've got over half an hour into the episode and that is the first time anyone has interrupted anyone so there we go that's <laughs> that's an absolute accolade on on recording via microsoft teams it's a challenge in the current climate we'll go to alan then we'll go to ta to tem yeah yeah well this is basically i've been <laughs> doing this for uh quite a while and uh it's so important because our ability as leaders to influence other uh, leaders and uh, the executives and the CEO of our companies has a direct impact on our ability to be successful or not. It controls, in most cases, your budgeting, uh, how well you're able to grow and resource. And, um, and so it's extremely important uh, and I think, I don't know if it's by nature or uh, lack of experience, designers seem to be uniquely bad at uh, doing this sort of thing. And, um, you know, uh, what I, the way I've approached it, though, is uh, I have a few sort of set stories, let's say. Uh, these things have been tested. Uh, and I, I should say I've also I've also done sales as part of working in design consultancies. So I think there's a you know if you I would encourage anyone who's listening if if this is a, a topic that you need to get better at uh, force yourself to do some sort of sales um, because that will help you with the storytelling and the, the messaging, but also just sort of how you can uh, interact with, uh, you know, with these people who have that, that sort of um, influence that you need to tap into. I know McKinsey, uh, when was it, a few years ago, put out this thing about uh, the value of design. It was a big report. Executives love McKinsey, so that was something I sort of glommed onto, and I've integrated that into different things that I have. Um, you know, one of the things they showed was they tracked uh, whatever it was. Uh, I don't know if it was the Fortune 500 or, or the S&P 500, uh, maybe. But they showed like the return to shareholders was greater uh, from companies that they had classified as being more user experience focused. And what I did was I took that report and then I sort of mapped it to initiatives that we are doing in Electrolux, for example, uh, at my current company, and to show, okay, here's the investment that we're making um, around analytical leadership, right? And how is that connected to the bigger missions or the bigger uh, objectives uh, within the company around it could be around our product roadmap or it could be even bigger than that how do we um, invest in cross-functional talent uh, how do we invest in continuous iteration so these were all part of that report and and then one final thing i did was or I have done, uh, because this is this is a continuous process, I should say. There's always uh, more to do. 
and you have to constantly sort of refresh people, reactivate them. Uh, and of course, there's new new executives that join that you have to uh, connect with. But the the last part of this for me has been around how we've systemized design. So we have a design system. Um, it's it's uh, a bit more, it's a bit broader than purely digital focused or mobile focused design systems that we're used to. And what I what I've done was I I created a sort of case study around to sort of calculate the savings of utilizing this design system uh, and calculate it, you know, based on uh, what it would have cost to get a con external consultant at such at hourly rate uh, to redo some of this stuff, right? And you know, just using a simple button as the example, and I can walk people through that because everyone knows what a button is, and you can explain it in very non-designer terms, uh, and then connect it to, okay, here's the bigger, here's what all that leads to, right? We're spending, you know, 2,000 hours on just buttons uh, when you look at everything that we do, whatever the number was. Um, so, yeah, these are just some tactics that I've used and have been uh, at least somewhat successful with. Tim, what are your thoughts? I completely agree with, uh, I think that's sort of um, one of the, I think, most insightful tips that I got, that I got was from a, a, one of my uh, previous UX managers when I was a UX lead uh, at Tele2. He said, uh, be the one with the document in hand like that's super important right so uh, um it's i mean we can talk about sort of uh ux maturity within organizations and evangelizing and all that stuff and but it's like <laughs> what it boils down to is just like alan was was talking about is um, to actually find the numbers and the make them relevant right but most importantly create the report be the person who actually reports this and be the person who puts the numbers together and like put these documents together and share them with the company that's what sort of evangelizing is about it's not about saying that oh ux is really important or because i think well first of all solve this problem and win the nobel prize i think that's the sort of <laughs> that's the constant struggle that that we have and this is the part that sucks about doing ux um even in 2021 and 2022 but i think we need to realize that ux is a support function i think that's the first realization that we need to have ux is rarely the big the most important function in an organization we are there to support the rest of the organization right um there's a lot of companies that don't do, don't may, may not even have a UX department and they're making bank. Like sure, their their products. I mean, consider Microsoft products in the 90s and early 2000s, like Excel and all that type of stuff. Like um, UX wise compared to today, horrible, right? But Microsoft was, was owning the whole uh, office scenario. Right? So you don't need to have good UX to make money. And I think that's the first realization. Um, but then when we talk about, uh, speaking of McKinsey, when we talk about UX measuring UX maturity within an organization, it's not even on a, an organization basis, it's per department, because you can have one department in your organization that has a UX maturity that's really high, but then you talk to the guys who sit in the room next to them, and their maturity is really low, and maybe that manager is even more influential in the company, right? So that's also when it comes to the individual, when it comes to evangelizing. Uh, I think realizing UX is a support function, uh, but be the one with the document in hand, and then also a lot of that work has to be under the radar. Um, I mean, since most people aren't designers, they don't really, they can't really foresee the value of design. So you need to show them with a document, right? So if you're not getting money 
if you're not getting a budget for user testing or whatever, you need to just go out and do some guerrilla testing. Uh, I know at Electrolux, you guys are really good at uh, doing um, hands-on UX research and testing. Um, you have a whole, whole bunch of methods that doesn't cost a lot. But you need to show the value, right? Um, and then hopefully you will get a, with just a, a small sample size, and then you take that to a manager who's influential, show them the number, and they'd be like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. And then you go, yeah, imagine if we had a budget, you know? Mm, right. Alexander, finally, we'll come to you. Yeah, well, I, uh, this is also interesting because I, I have a bit of a different perspective on this since I've been working as a consultant for so long. And that is like an, another level, I think, of this discussion, which I think is very interesting because as a consultant, this is something that is always on my mind every time I start a new project, basically, because this question in my world is a bit of a catch-22. Like, you're a consultant because they need your expertise because they don't got it. So every time it's Groundhog Day when you like start over at a new assignment a lot of times because of that reason. And also I, I, I have as an internal joke for myself is that it, sometimes it feels like I don't understand why certain clients pay me a lot of money to seat me in a conference room to argue with me that I'm wrong when I try to tell them what you're supposed to do. <laughs> and that is like sometimes the life as a consultant in this business when you have like working with an unmature organization. We have an internal saying here that a lot of times the CEO's neighbor's dogs like yellow buttons, and that's why it's supposed to be yellow. And we try to tell them that, no, that is not a valid reason to have yellow buttons. But that that's like sometimes what we meet out there. Uh, so that is quite interesting. But something that I love in my role as well as a consultant in this area is that not only am I there to deliver something or, or build something, I'm also there to educate. And... I also love seeing or helping an organization make that shift, like majority shift and see how things changes. Like a bit like you guys already talked about, like when you see that the client actually applies something that you did with them and they think it's an awesome thing and now they use it internally. And you know that you were there to, to learn them that tool or give them that tool. I think that is something that is very awesome and helping them with. But also I see a downside to this, especially as consultants. I've seen this in my, my whole career is that, especially as a UX designer or a designer, I think that we are always so emotionally invested in what we do because we see so much more than maybe other roles do. Like if we do this small change, this will be the outcome for these persons. This will change their lives for the better if we only do this small thing. But getting other people to agree on doing that change can be so hard sometimes. And that is very frustrating. And I think a lot of designers actually burn out because they are trying to, to work so hard to get that change. And they, don't, they, they aren't able to do it because of politics and, and other things like culture. So what I also usually say to my designers is that usually we have to stop as designers and look backwards because usually we, we already made 80% of, of the work and we have 20% left. And for us, it's so simple to gain those last 20% because we can actually see the goal. We know where the goal actually is, but others might not. And then I always ask them like, is it even worth it to fight so hard for the last 20%? Is it really necessary because you already made a product or the service 80% better than it was before you came in. So leave it, like accept that 80% is enough. Because sometimes I feel like we as designers always like, we want to fight so much that we want to win. The, we want to win just this fight so bad that we lose the war basically. And I think that is something that I think we, we need to zone out from our screens and like, like Tem said, or I think it was Alan maybe, like we are super bad at seeing outcomes or understand the business of things sometimes, but I think we need to understand that more high level, even as a UI designer or whatever you are, or at least have somebody who can help you understand the purpose. It's like when developers develop features that they don't even understand why they're developing because nobody told them. Like, I think it's, it's that type of dilemma sometimes. Uh, but as well, I think that the design system is very interesting as well in the in this uh, in this discussion because I worked the last two two years almost full time with design systems, and what I got from that now is that there is only two times you have to argue a lot about these questions now. 
either is when you are supposed to ask for more money for your design system, they have to prove the value again. Or if you have like uh, move on to a new area where the design system isn't already implemented, then you have to like start over with the value proposition of the design system to systemize and so on. But I also think that design systems also came with the mindset of systemization, which people, I think companies actually understand the value of, which makes it a lot easier as well. And it's easier to implement things because the as you can you can actually see the return on investment in actual money. Like as you said, Alamiro or Tam, you don't have to make a button 14 times, you can make it once. And then you can actually convert that to pure money. And money always talks with with stakeholders, is my my learning as well. Yeah, but and I, I usually say that uh, when I get the question, I got that question, like, you know, what's the best design system to use? I usually say that, like, what's when people ask me, Tim, what's the best design system? I usually say it's the one that's being used. And if that means you have an H1, H2, H3, four principles and a button and you use it, that's better than, you know, the one you downloaded, the, the Ericsson, the, what is it? charcoal or whatever design system that you downloaded that has all the functions in it but nobody uses exactly but i think that the, the biggest thing that my my takeaway that i learned in my career is it's better to uh, say you're sorry than ask for permission like you said before just do it and deal with the consequences afterward because that's sometimes what you have to do basically yeah i'm a, I'm a big believer in asking for forgiveness rather than permission um normally works well um I hope my manager doesn't listen to this. Uh, Jacob, any uh, lessons to take away from that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you guys bring up very good points. Um, the design system, if we're going to touch upon that, we we have it. It would be nice to maybe touch base on the details at another time in, in how you build the design system. I mean, for us, it's visual components and, and everything and, and down to code, of course. But um, that that wasn't the hardest bit in trying to convey. The hardest bit has been you know, insight, like, you know, we have insight everywhere. You have feedback forms, you have MPS, you have um, fragmented surveys that sits on Google Drive. And, you know, how do you gather all that insight into actionable uh, things? And, and I mean, yeah, so pre, pre-COVID, like I said, we, we worked a lot. I mean, we did basically what we both Tem and, and, and Alexander and you, Alan, said, and trying to convey management with reports and showing, you know, this this is the benefits. And, and then we iterated that. We continued to find small things that, you know, look at this, how this could have been. But if, I mean, it, I think it requires a culture where you, you really measure things, like you measure outcomes. And that is, you know, we're not really there. You know, sometimes it's gut feeling and then, you know, there's, not enough accountability maybe you don't evaluate a business case or an outcome in, in the right way and it sort of becomes lost um but yeah i mean so we switched up management uh, now you know i need to i need to go back to square one a bit start working on people again so so i think i think it's some lessons learned also from that time and, and from what you guys said so jump on it it's the very purpose of this conversation is to take insights from people who do things differently and take lessons um, we're going to head to Alan for the final question um, Alan what is your question first of all um, and what's the context behind it okay well I'm going to throw out an easy one so um, I'm interested to hear if you could recommend one book for uh, someone joining your team to read, what what would you like that to be? I love this question. I'm going to jump in first. We have um, we have a whole training program on um, on Kofi's Seven Habits um, to successful people. We're massive on that at Evolution Nordics. It's a bit of a um, a running theme in most things we do. So that's my answer. Um, Alexander, is there anything that you would recommend? Oh, yes. And uh, maybe it's not what you expect, but I actually read a book a while ago that is called No Hard Feelings, Emotions at Work, uh, and How They Help Us Succeed. Uh, it's written by Liz Follins and Molly West Duffy. And it's, it, I love it because I am a very like emotional person and I, I 
I see other people as people as well in a lot of situations. And I love dealing with like how people act as, I mean, like we are humans and we, we have a special biology, how we, how we have a fight or flight and whatever. And this touches a base on a lot of situations in a workplace, like every workplace and the reasoning behind it and how you can handle it as a human. And I think it also goes down to such a basic level on understanding yourself as a human and how to act and react for certain situations that I would say that it was an eye opener for me as well. Like, and I think that it has been for a lot of people that I lent it to as well. So that is actually one of those books that I really like people to, to read that is not even design specific, but because I think it could apply to everybody who is starting working or in a workplace with other people, because we are in foundation animals and we have packed behavior and all of that stuff left, even though we might sometimes not think we have, uh, we are still animals and, and this will help you with understanding a lot of those emotions. I'm making a list myself here. So there's one. Um, Jacob, is there anything that you would recommend for teams to read in, in sort of how that can, um, can help in creating high performance teams? Um, so, so when, and I'm going to focus a, a bit more on UX maybe than product. Um, and I think it's a classic. Um, it's the one, don't make me think. Steve Krug, you, most people probably know it. But I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of back to the basics of, of not complicating things and, and, and making it super easy. Because sometimes when, when you look at, you know, UX and design, it, it it, it can become a bit overanalyzed, overcomplicated. Uh, and, you know, if you have maybe a designer that's all into visuals, don't want to create UX flows and, and or UI flows, um, you know, they, they might tend to to uh, yeah, make things yeah, a, a bit more complex than they have to be. And I think this book brings it back to uh, sort of the basics of what UX and UI design should be, at least for us when it comes to e-commerce flows and, and you know, simplicity in, in trying to convert people to, to book a hotel or a restaurant or whatever it is. I'm a big fan of anything that, that reverts back to the basics and, and taking the complexity and um, overthinking out of life and and taking you back to e-core principles that, that make things easier and successful Tem, is there anything that you recommend yeah i mean obviously like deep the rams uh, and the uh, thinking fast and slow and those things but one book that actually inspired me a lot is called the super normal sensations of the ordinary and it's a uh, it's by uh two people a guy called jasper morrison and naoto fukasawa um they compiled 204 everyday objects uh, of supernormal design. So you have like the, the standard big, you know, the ballpoint pen, and you have that typical, um, you know, that espresso machine that you put on the stovetop that everybody recognizes. But, you know, so it's like supernormal designs. And I think that was, for me, was so eye-opening because Everybody wants to be Tesla, everybody wants to be Apple, but like 98% of the products and the services and the companies there are just standard e-commerce and standard products and standard services that we are trying to, so that insight. And they have a, a, a fantastic quote where they say, there are better ways of design than putting a lot of effort into making something look special. Special is generally less useful than normal and less rewarding in the long term. Special things demand attention for the wrong reason, interrupting potentially good atmosphere with their awkward presence. And I think that quote was just fantastic because as designers trying to optimize things, it's not about making special things, it's trying to make, I think that's part of good design. Um, and just that feeling of being okay with making something super normal, but making it work really well, was like it actually elevated me as a designer <laughs> some huge plug some huge plugs here for some um fantastic authors in literature um if you're listening get in touch and we'll get you on <laughs> uh, alan is there anything that I'm, I'm curious um in answer to your own question is there anything that you recommend 
Yeah, well, uh, it's also a, a maybe a little bit out of left field, but uh, how buildings learn uh, so was put together by Stuart Brand. And here it's, I mean, it's an architectural book, but it's about how buildings change and evolve once they're built. And the reason I would point people to this one is, you know, there's this, uh, you can see uh, sort of an analogy to software. And a lot of us are working on digital products, but we don't necessarily think of those things as organic, or we don't necessarily think about how they change or evolve once we release them. And I think, you know, as designers, the more that we can have this longer view thinking and uh, not only, you know, to have maybe better products or to have a richer life, but also to help us consider the impacts of the things that we make and the things that we put out into the world, whether it's ethical or social or environmental. Um, but to just have that, you know, perspective a little bit uh, to bring into our work, I think can be extremely helpful. And this is such a accessible way to get people into that mindset. It's very visual. It's, uh, I think it's highly entertaining. Uh, so check it out. I'm sure everyone will. Alexander, have you got something to add? Yeah, I think that is very interesting because that just made me think of a quote that a friend of mine who is a designer, an industrial designer, said to me once that when he when we built physical products together, him and I, I was like, I want to make everything perfect. Like if you cut out something in wood, it was supposed to be exactly 90 squares. It was be a scratch on it. And what he told me then is like what people actually look for a lot of times is that when you have something that is high quality and you use it a lot, it will get worn out or you get wear on the thing, but that is what makes it personal. That is what makes it special. And I think mm -hmm. it, it it might be a bit uh, fluffy for me to say in this context, but I think like the metaphorical reasoning behind it is quite interesting, as you say, like it's the flaws that make it personal, like how, how you wear, the wear on your, on your stuff is what makes it yours. And I think that's an analogy you might be able to use in a digital world as well somehow, but I think that's very interesting. A really interest, uh, interesting twist to end today's episode with um, not something we've covered before. So thanks for that, Alan. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank Alan, Tem, Alexander and Jacob for providing their insights into the topic. Some great recommendations um, in um, structure, in um, managing teams and in literature um, thank you for listening also uh, if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts please do reach out to me on linkedin or by email at sean.hughes at evolution-nordics.com and we'll see you next time